From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. On this week's program, the measles outbreak continues to grow. Here's one doctor's message to parents who hesitate to have their children vaccinated. Measles vaccine, MMR, does not cause autism. If that is your fear, you need to put it away and get your child vaccinated, and you need to get vaccinated. Mayo Clinic pediatrician Dr. Robert Jacobson joins us with a measles update. Also on the program, heart disease claims the lives of more women than breast cancer. February is American Heart Month, and Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Sharon Hayes joins us to talk about women and heart health. And we'll have tips on how to care for your skin during the dry months of winter. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Tracy McCrae. Measles is making a comeback. Since the beginning of this year, the CDC is reporting a rapid increase in cases across several states. And the upward trend is not just this year. In 2014, the CDC reported 644 cases of measles, more than three times the number than in the previous year. What's behind the increase? Is it an epidemic? Here to talk about measles is Mayo Clinic pediatrician and adolescent medicine specialist, Dr. Robert Jacobson. Welcome to the program, Dr. Jacobson. Thanks for having me. Well, it's uh, something that is really making people nervous, I guess, in a lot of different areas, but it's kind of dividing people out into the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. Do we know for sure that the people who are um, coming down and, and contracting measles have not been vaccinated? Yes, for the most part. Uh, what the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the Department of Health at California have said is that the, the majority of these have been unvaccinated individuals who were old enough to be vaccinated or were too young, under 12 months, to have been vaccinated. What is um, a phrase that is coming up that I've been hearing? Herd immunity. A, a lot of our patients at Mayo Clinic and a lot of uh, patients across the United States actually because of immunocompromise or because of our age, less than 12 months of age, depend on what we call herd immunity. Herd immunity is when enough of us are immune uh, that we create a cocoon or a halo around those people who are not immune, either because of disease, refusal to get the vaccine, or because of age, too young to get the vaccine. This halo or cocoon is quite effective, but for a measles uh, herd immunity, we really need a good 90, maybe 95% of us to be immune. Now that's tall order. Uh, in fact, that, that really uh, behooves all of us to get the vaccine and understand that perhaps up to 5% of us will not respond even after two doses. That was something I was thinking about, that we really are not two groups, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. We are three groups, the vaccinated, the unvaccinated, and the unable to get vaccinated. Who is in that third category? Well, the, the biggest one is our, our immunocompromised patients. They're on medicines to treat uh, uh, autoimmune phenomenon, uh, but that medicine actually lowers their immunity um, that they had developed from a previous vaccine. Um, or they're on an immunocompromising condition because of 
of uh, a chronic disease such as a cancer uh, where that uh, immunosuppressing drug is also fighting off their cancer. Or they may have a disease that directly immunocompromises. Perhaps they're born with it, such as those children with severe combined immunodeficiency disorder. Um, and they also cannot get the vaccine because it's a live viral vaccine. It's a weakened virus form that tricks the body into making antibody against the wild form of measles. Do we know yet, has there been enough time passed to know what was behind the current outbreak? I mean, people are saying Disneyland is kind of the epicenter of it. I think we know enough uh, at this point that the uh, contagion began at Disneyland uh, in California. Uh, what we suspect but have not seen confirmed yet is probably the lead case, the index case, the person who brought it into Disneyland most likely was an international traveler. Possibly measles has been gone from the, our awareness for so many years that we just think it's a childhood disease and it's not that big of a deal, but what, what does measles do to someone? Oh, it can be a horrific disease. I, if it, um, uh, up to 40% of people during a measles outbreak can be so sick that they're hospitalized and they're getting uh, intravenous fluids for support. They might require oxygen. Um, we don't have a, a drug we can treat measles with directly, uh, but we can make them comfortable and sustain their organ systems and get them through the illness. But some are left with permanent harm. You can develop an encephalopathy uh, and some will re uh, get secondary bacterial infections, such as those who get pneumonia or uh, middle ear infections. We, we say on average about one out of 300 or one out of 400 die from measles, but a good uh, fourth to a third end up hospitalized. And uh, then you've got to count all of the people who have to be careful about the potential for exposure. For example, we have two cases in Arizona. One of the complications is about 1,000 people have been exposed and need to be quarantined or monitored closely uh, until they can be proven free of disease. That's quite a hardship on people who need to work and people who need to finish school. Um, so there's a lot of complications of this. What should people do if they think they have measles? And what does it look like if you do have measles? Right now, we're really asking people with a fever and rash to get that evaluated. And that means they need to contact their clinician, let them know that they are worried about measles. Uh, many offices, such as ours, have special procedures for how we bring somebody who might be that contagious into the office. Uh, we have special rooms. We have masks available. We often will have the patients take a back stairway or go up uh, a back elevator. But they need to be evaluated because we aren't going to uh, determine whether or not you have measles without seeing you. We have blood tests, but uh, right now we're actually using swabs with PCR techniques working with the state of Minnesota, just as many clinicians can work across the country with their state Department of Health to uh, do a rapid assessment for measles. Meanwhile, quarantine that person or isolate that person until we know the result of the test. Now, in addition to the fever and rash, there can be a cough, a runny nose, and runny eyes. Eyes, um, and there can be telltale diagnostic white spots inside the mouth. But uh, as a person who's cared for children with measles, those are pretty tricky, and I think I'd leave it up to professionals to tell if you have it or not. Meanwhile, for everyone else, make sure you know your measles vaccine status or your measles immunity. Um, you can count on, if you were born uh, 1956 or earlier, you can count on it that you've already had the measles and you're immune. For everyone else, uh, if you're outside of uh, students and uh, those uh, who are traveling to areas where there are um, outbreaks, uh, one vaccine is good enough. Uh, for the people who are traveling, 
to areas like California, Arizona, other states affected by these outbreaks, or internationally to areas that are affected, we need evidence of two vaccines received. There are some infants who have to travel to one of these areas. And for those 6 to 12 months of age, not yet turned 12, but 6 to 11, we can give a dose. But when that child turns 12, that dose doesn't count. they got to start the series again and get their two doses for real this time. The vaccine that would prevent measles is that MMR. We've had mumps show up in the last few months, and now measles is showing up on our radar. What is rubella? That's what the R is of, of yes. that MMR. You know, rubella, or German measles, is a, um, a tricky kind of virus because it really doesn't make children and adults that sick. Uh, it can give you a fever. You can uh, be in bed for a few days. You might have a rash that you notice or not. Uh, but it doesn't cause any complications directly to that individual. But what it does do is cause for pregnant women who are not immune, um, for them to give birth to a child who is blind, deaf, and uh, cognitively impaired. Mm. Um, in fact, it can uh, uh, result in a stillbirth or a spontaneous abortion. It's a horrific illness. And uh, uh, we used to have uh, uh, up to 20,000 cases a year of congenital rubella syndrome. And it was the vaccine that just made that go away. What is your message for vaccine-hesitant parents? Measles vaccine, MMR, does not cause autism. We have proven it. We have proven it in a way that we have uh, so aggressively studied it around the world and repeatedly. We have very few things that we know so surely that measles vaccine does not cause autism. If that is your fear, you need to put it away and get your child vaccinated, and you need to get vaccinated. Thank you, Dr. Jacobson. We've been talking with Mayo Clinic pediatrician and adolescent medicine specialist, Dr. Robert Jacobson, about the measles outbreak. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, February is American Heart Month. We'll be talking with Mayo Clinic cardiologist, Dr. Sharon Hayes, about menopause and women's heart health. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Chai. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, according to statistics from the NIH, one in four women in the U.S. dies of heart disease. But until recently, it seems like a lot of the focus on diagnosing and treating heart disease was on men. Well, not so much anymore. That's all changed. <laughs> Here to talk about detecting and treating heart disease in women is Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Sharon Hayes. Welcome to the program. It's great to be back. All right. One of the reasons that got you here was something that I saw about menopause and heart disease and there being a correlation between the two. Is, is that a fact? Well, it actually, it's a sort of nuanced answer, yes and no. Okay. So at menopause, so when women start stop producing those higher levels of estrogen, um, there are some unfavorable things that happen. So <laughs> I love that. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. It depends on how you look at it. That's but right. um, But typically cholesterol goes up a bit, blood pressure goes up a bit. Weight goes up a bit. There's been some, the, the reason there's a controversy is it really the menopause or time of life? If you think about other things that mm. happen to women, empty nesting, mm-hmm. a variety of things. But around that time of menopause, yes, it does appear cardiovascular risk goes up. And I use it as an opportunity to tell, you know, because a lot of 
women go in and talk to their doctor about what to do with menopausal symptoms or whatever. So this is the time to talk about what am I going to do about my heart and keeping it healthy for the next 30 years. And all the stuff I've had getting ready for menopause, never has there been in my mind a correlation between the heart and menopause. So I'm so glad that you're here to talk about it today. Well, you have a long time to go, don't you? Unfortunately. So, is it true that up until the time of menopause, the incidence of heart disease in women is much lower? But then they catch up. Well, so the incidence of heart disease in women is lower than it is in men all the way past menopause until probably 65, 70s. That said, the risk of dying from a heart attack for a younger woman is much greater than a man the same age. So those are two counterbalancing things. So if women get heart disease at a younger age, they tend to have a worse outcome, which is why prevention is so key. Hormone replacement therapy can reduce your risk for heart disease, myth or matter of fact? absolute myth. Wow, and tell us why. Well, because we've got some great data that tells us why. Um, We thought that was a matter of fact about 20 years ago. In fact, in some cases, we were prescribing hormone therapy after a heart attack to reduce the rate Mm. of a second heart attack. Mistake. Mistake. Uh, We probably caused harm. And so the Women's Health Initiative came out and showed us that estrogen given after menopause doesn't reduce heart attack, and we shouldn't be using that. Now, that doesn't mean we should be afraid to use it in women who need it for other reasons. I think it's important to emphasize for uh, particularly the the women in our audience that heart disease, far and away, not breast cancer, not any form of cancer, actually, but heart disease is what's most likely to take their life. Exactly. It's number one by a long shot. And I, I think it's For those individuals who are affected by breast cancer, obviously that is their number one concern. But in fact, half a million women, 500,000 women plus, die of cardiovascular disease each year, and about 40,000 die of breast cancer. So we're not saying pay less attention to breast cancer prevention and and activities. But if women paid just as much attention to their heart as they do to breast health, They'd live longer and be healthier. Okay. To get beyond bikini medicine. (laughs) Well, then let's look at that. I was just going to say. So if women have in their head, they have to get their mammogram, they have to get their pap test every four or five years. What do you want them to be thinking about for heart-related health? So every time they go to see their doctor, and it may not be every year in younger women, um, but they should be asking about let's have a cardiac risk assessment. There are There isn't a mammogram for the heart. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a challenge. You can't uh-huh. just go in, stick out your hand, stick out, you know, we don't do an EKG every year or a stress test. Sure. On the other hand, we can do a risk factor checkup, and that means both behaviors and numbers. So blood pressure, cholesterol, triglycerides, those are some of the numbers we need to know. But other things that, how much do I exercise, is it enough, and is it right? Um, am I smoking or not? What is my diet looking like? Um, should I be eating more or less of something? What's my salt intake? And how is that trending over time? Um, and what are things I can't control, like my family history? So those are things to have conversations because all of those things figure into one's risk assessment and then the frequency of further checkups. If someone is determined uh, to be at high risk, should they visit with a a cardiologist? Well, I I would not say they absolutely need to uh, see a cardiologist. 
cardiologists are great at um, evaluating people who are at high risk, but those who have no symptoms and are at high risk, uh, most internists and fac- uh, family practitioners have all the tools that they need to um, to treat that risk, to manage that risk. As long as we're talking about symptoms, tell us uh, how they may differ in women than in men, particularly with regard to a heart attack. So I think uh, we talk a lot about you need to know the signs and symptoms of a heart attack, and, and women's symptoms have just not been studied as well. So that's an interesting thing because the data there, when we've looked at the data, there isn't like a man's symptom of heart attack and a women's symptom of heart attack. In fact, about 30% of men and women don't get chest pain at all. Yeah, I was just going to say the Hollywood heart attack, I've heard men nor women really have that, which you're the clutching of the chest and uh, that just doesn't An elephant sitting on your chest, 30% of the time only. So 30%, a, a little more frequent in women that they don't have chest discomfort, but in some of those studies they're flawed because they never asked women if they had chest pain they just you know and there are differences in frequency so nausea and vomiting is probably more common as a symptom in heart attack for women than it is in men Uh, breathlessness without chest Mm -hmm. pain more common but the overlap is huge so we encourage men and women to know all of the symptoms and and the biggest thing is women are less likely to call 911 or activate healthcare. So say, and we know that even there was a survey done that showed that women, about 70, 80% of women, if they saw another person having heart attack symptoms, they would call 911. Less than 50% would do it if they had those symptoms. That's a big disconnect. I've heard it said that the most common way women present to the emergency room with a heart attack is DOA, dead on arrival. Well, that's not quite true, right. but it's it an, is. It's my- an overstatement, <laughs> isn't it? I realize that. But like you say, women hesitate to uh, call 911 for themselves, but if it's their husband that they think might be having a heart attack, they'll call. That's exactly right. And I think, uh, you know, I've heard so many stories about attributing it those symptoms, which may be deep in their brain because it's been more with Go Red and, and Heart Truth, there's been more awareness of those symptoms. But, oh, I, maybe it's just menopause. Maybe it's peri, you know, yeah. peri, perimenstrual. Yeah. Maybe it's age. Maybe I'm getting the flu. I think I'll take a bath. Well, the bath doesn't make them better, and now they've had chest pain for three or four hours. So I think the the... Knowing the symptoms is critical, but knowing what to do, and that's call 911. Don't drive yourself. Don't have a spouse or a neighbor drive you. Call 911. Aspirin chewer? Are you? Do you recommend that? Aspirin chewer is harmless in that situation, but I've heard too many patients. We've actually backed away a little bit because patients were taking an aspirin, seeing if they felt better than then. not calling 911. <laughs> there was a miss. You know, they were thinking oh. aspirin like for a heart attack. So yes, we believe chewing an aspirin at home is important, but it's not instead, and you don't wait. You chew an aspirin while you're waiting for 911. Dr. Sharon Hayes, thanks so much for a great update on women's heart health. Always good to talk to you, and thanks for being on the program. Thank you. Dr. Sharon Hayes is a cardiologist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, the groundhog says we're going to have six more weeks of winter. Along with the snow and cold for many of us, that means dry and itchy skin. We'll talk to Mayo Clinic dermatologist Dr. Don Davis about how to care for your winter skin problems. As we've been saying, February is American Heart Month, and if you have a heart-related question you'd like us to answer in an upcoming program, you can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with headlines from the Mayo Clinic News Network. Here's some good news in the fight against ovarian cancer. Research may one day help improve the five-year survival rate. The researchers from Ontario describe a new way to shrink ovarian cancer tumors while also improving drug delivery. Very basically, the method has to do with certain protein interactions in our body that kill off cells that supply tumors with blood. Without blood, tumors can't grow. The process is called anti-angiogenesis, and the researchers hope it will lead to new treatment options for women with advanced stage ovarian cancer. Their work showed in mice that this approach plus chemotherapy resulted in tumor shrinkage and better survival. And this was published in the Phase B Journal. And now news about breast cancer, or rather a question. Which breast cancer patients need to have underarm lymph nodes removed? Mayo Clinic-led research is narrowing it down. A new study finds that not all women with lymph node-positive breast cancer treated with chemotherapy before surgery need to have all of their underarm nodes taken out. The researchers found ultrasound helps show if chemo got rid of cancer from lymph nodes before surgery, and if so, those nodes may not have to be removed. Here's Dr. Judy Bowie. Our goal here is really to try to get away from every patient with breast cancer needs these drugs and this amount of chemotherapy and this surgery and try to individualize based on how that patient responds to chemotherapy. And so that's one of the really nice things about giving chemotherapy up front is it can allow us to be less invasive with the surgical resection. I think that the take-home point from the study is I think more and more institutions are looking at utilizing axillary ultrasound post-chemotherapy to give the clinicians an indication of the response the disease not only in the breast but also in the lymph nodes and then the surgeons can use that in their counseling with the patients to define what kind of surgical intervention to pursue in the axilla. And this was published in the journal Clinical Oncology. And now are you getting enough sleep? In today's world, it seems many of us are walking around sleep-deprived. The National Sleep Foundation, also called the NSF, and a panel of experts put out new recommendations for how much sleep people should get. They recommend wider sleep ranges for most age groups, and here's some of what they came up with. Newborns should sleep a lot, 14 to 17 hours a day. Toddlers, 11 to 14 hours. School-age kids, 9 to 11 hours. And teenagers who never seem to get enough sleep, 8 to 10 10 hours. Most adults should get between 7 and 9 hours a night. Now, if you want to learn more about how much sleep you should get, this paper is published in Sleep Health, the official journal of the National Sleep Foundation. And that's a look at headlines from the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. Along with Tracy McRae. It's wintertime, and whether you live with ice and snow or just cold, windy weather, it's a time of year that can be hard on your skin. Well, here to talk about how to care for your skin during these harsh winter months, Mayo Clinic dermatologist Dr. Don Davis. Dr. Davis, welcome back to the program. Always nice to see you. <laughs> Thank you, Tom and Tracy. My very distinct pleasure to be here. It's cloudy out there, but sunscreen on today? Absolutely. So <laughs> I always say sunscreen as a dermatologist. But one thing that's true is that people assume when the clouds are out that the UV light can't penetrate through the clouds because visible light from the sun cannot. The ultraviolet light is a longer wavelength of light that can penetrate through clouds, and it also penetrates through glass. So you get ultraviolet light 
through a window if you're driving in a car or sitting in your home next to the window, and you also get ultraviolet light through clouds. So one of the most common times to actually get a severe sunburn is on a cloudy day. And I would bet that you didn't stop at the tanning booth on your way to work. (laughs) I did not stop at the tanning booth on the way to work, but unfortunately a million people a day in the United States use tanning beds. And at this time of year especially. Well, I'm getting ready to go on vacation, so i got to do my four or five tanning bed visits. But they consider it preventive. They do preventive. So they won't get a sunburn when they get to uh, Cancun. Correct. Uh, The people are well-meaning when they, in their attention to go use a tanning bed. They think that they're doing themselves a healthy favor, but we try to explain to them that that's not the case. Unfortunately, it's a level two uh, FDA-restricted machine that now comes with warnings that say that it is harmful and can cause cancer. So that's good. It also says that people shouldn't use them if they're under the age of 18, although not all states have um, made it illegal for minors to use them. It is currently outlawed in the state of Minnesota and a few other states, and there are multiple other states that are on the way to making it illegal for minors to use tanning beds. Some people use tanning beds in the winter because they have seasonal affective disorder and they want to see light and they want to feel heat on their skin because they're tired of being cold and seeing the gloomy skies. And we try to encourage those patients that instead of going to the tanning bed to talk to their primary care provider about getting a seasonal affective disorder light, which is simply a white light that shines brightly and has much more neurochemical benefit to your eyes and your brain and is much safer for your overall well-being than using a tanning bed. Is there any difference between getting a sunburn versus getting a suntan when it comes to the health of your skin? Sure. So when people go to a sunny vacation, they don't want to be pale. They want to look nice in their clothes and in their swimsuit. So that's the first reason they tan. And the other reason they tan is that they don't want to burn. So with regards to looking tan, you can always use a sunless tanner on your skin. They will stay on your skin for 7 to 10 days. They've come a long way with regards to the shades of colors that they are are available in. And they work everywhere from Fitzpatrick type one blonde, redheaded, fair-eyed people to skin of color. And then the other thing is, is that there there is a difference between a suntan and a sunburn. It's just a matter of degree. So all suntans, by definition, are sunburns because you have to get an inflammatory reaction to get your melanocyte to turn on to cause increased coloring of your skin. So it's the melanocytes in your skin that cause the color. Exactly. So what happens is the sun stimulates the melanocyte. It sees damage. And as a result of damage and inflammation, it turns itself on to put more pigment in your skin to help protect itself from damage. So the only reason that it even occurs is because it sees damage in the first place. So a suntan is simply a matter of degree of a sunburn. Another thing we have to flip it around the other way. If you're not going to Cancun for your vacation, you're going to go skiing Absolutely. So people get a lot of sunburns of the back of their retinas while they ski. It's very important that you wear ski goggles at all time for the protection of your eyeball, but it's also important that you have ski goggles that have a UV film on them so that you don't sunburn your eyeballs. And it's not uncommon to get very bad um, sunburns when you ski uh, because sun will reflect off of water, sand, concrete, and snow. And so when it's reflected, it increases its intensity. So it's worse than just standing on the grass and getting sun. Let's talk about vitamin D then. Vitamin D is very important. There's no doubt about that. We all need vitamin D. It's much healthier to get vitamin D through your diet. And you can get enough vitamin D from natural sunlight on naturally exposed areas of your body by just being outside in casual light for 10 to 15 minutes a week. So anybody who parks their car and walks across a parking lot to and from the store is going to get enough sunlight to make vitamin D. You don't have to have your vitamin D bath. 
You don't have day. to bathe in vitamin D. <laughs> okay, very good. Well, I do want to bathe in lotion because my skin is very dry at this time of year. Well, I'm just so happy to hear anybody say they want to bathe in lotion because that's every dermatologist's best dream. But um, dermatologists definitely love lotion and ointments and gels. Um, and it's very important to keep your skin hydrated because the skin is the largest body organ in the body by surface area, and it is exposed to the elements all day long, no matter where you are inside and out. And it's very hard to keep the air humid appropriately for your house and for your work environment and where you go about in town. So you need to protect and seal your skin with moisture by replenishing it because you lose more water a day in the winter off your skin than you do by breathing and sweating. So we lose some water out of our mouth when we breathe. We lose water out of our body when we sweat. But we lose way more in the winter just from our skin, from diffusion into the air. So we just need to replete it with what we've lost. Otherwise, we're a raisin. You know, I remember back uh, several years ago when your colleague, Dr. Roy Rogers, used to be on the program. And one of the things that he advocated was before you dry off when you come out of the shower, that you put the the lotion on while you're still wet. Mm -hmm. Is that a good idea? That's a very good idea. We don't want to misunderstand and have people confused that we want you so wet that the, the lotion and the ointment just literally fall off with the water. Damp. You need so to be damp. damp. So what you do is you, you pat dry. You never scrub the skin because you don't want to irritate the skin, but you pat dry so that you're moist and damp. And then you seal with lotion, cream, or ointment. Ointments tend to penetrate deeper. And in the winter, when you have raw, itchy skin, sometimes it feels better because it doesn't sting. So we say that you have three minutes after a bath or shower when you are moist to put on an ointment, lotion, or cream. So it's a magic three-minute window. It's time for a short break. Our guest is Dr. Don Davis, Mayo Clinic dermatologist. When we come back, we'll talk about those cracks in your wintertime skin. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. We're with Mayo Clinic dermatologist, Dr. Don Davis. So we talked about skin cancer and uh, how much sun has to do with that, and it significantly increases your risk. There are several different kinds of skin cancer, aren't there? There are three main types of skin cancer. Basal cell carcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, and malignant melanoma, also just nicknamed melanoma. Basal cell carcinoma is the most common form of skin cancer, and there are more cases of basal cell carcinoma in the United States every year than all other types of cancers of all organs combined. So it's extremely common. Fortunately for the American public, it's a very slow-growing but locally destructive cancer. It's very, very rare, although it has been reported, for basal cell carcinoma to metastasize or go somewhere else besides its local environment. But it is not uncommon if a basal cell carcinoma is not picked up and treated appropriately for the basal cell carcinoma to destroy everything in its path, not just the skin that's there, but also the local nerves, blood vessels surrounding bone, muscle, and cartilage. So we want to make sure that if someone sees a growth on their skin, that continues to grow, that they seek advice from a primary care provider or skin specialist who can make a clinical assessment of what this is. Most basal cell carcinomas happen in people with lighter skin types, and they tend to be shiny, round, and have a lot of broken blood vessels on their surface. So they kind of look like a a pearl, if you will, with a little pinkish hue. And they might start off just looking like a plugged pore and no one thinks anything of it. Or maybe you think you have a bug bite in that area. But it just sticks around for a very long time and slowly over time it grows. Oftentimes the patient will not notice that it's growing. But it's someone like a spouse 
or a child who comes back home to see the parent or a hairdresser or someone mm. who sees you intermittently who says, gee, I used to think you just had that pimple on your nose, but have you noticed that thing is getting bigger? <laughs> so a lot of times it's so indolent to the patient because they're so used to having it around that they don't notice that it changes. Hmm. So is this uh, most commonly occurs in sun-exposed areas like the scalp and the face and the ears and neck? Yes, the basal cell carcinomas mostly happen from the neck up and also on the dorsal hands. They can also happen on the arms and legs. The top of the hand. Correct, the top of the hand. They can happen on arms and legs and chests and things, especially if you have an outdoor occupation, like being a lifeguard or a farmer or if you use tanning beds. The second most common form of skin cancer is a squamous cell carcinoma. People are more familiar in the community about squamous cell carcinomas because this type of growth also happens in other skin-lined organs. Like you can have squamous cell carcinoma of your throat and your tongue and other things. And, for example, famous celebrities who get throat cancer get a squamous cell carcinoma. But this happens on the outside of the body and not the inside. These but not just famous celebrities get squamous cell carcinoma. <laughs> Correct. Everybody can. But that's how it becomes more publicly recognized. Right. I got you. And squamous cell carcinoma tends to be red, rough, scratchy skin that just won't heal. So a lot of times it hides until it's invaded local tissue and it starts to hurt where it stings or it burns or it feels really firm and things feel stuck to it. So it's not uncommon to have a squamous cell carcinoma on your lip or on the inside of your mouth. This is how people with throat cancer get diagnosed so late, as they just think it's like a little irritation, and then all of a sudden when it's too late and it's become symptomatic, it's invaded local structures. If you see anything that is red and scratchy and looks like a wound but simply won't heal or looks like an area of eczema that doesn't respond to treatment, that would be something that you'd want a physician to investigate. And that's what I wanted to uh, touch on because we're talking about winter skin, and eczema is one of the things that was on our list. Is Do people suffer from eczema more in the winter? Than in the summer? About three quarters of people who are sensitive skinned who are predisposed to getting eczema will get it in the winter because their triggers include arid, dry, windy conditions. About a quarter of patients who get who have sensitive skin who are predisposed to getting eczema will get it worse in the summer because their skin happens to be sensitive to sweat and humidity. So most people are more sensitive to the dry, arid, cold and the wind. Some people are more sensitive to the sweat retention and moisture on the skin. All right, third type of, of skin cancer. Sure. The third type of skin cancer is malignant melanoma. There are four types of melanoma. Uh, melanoma has a very poor prognosis if it is caught late, but the five-year survival is very very high if it's caught in the earliest stage or stage one. So that's why dermatologists go around telling all their patients to look at all their spots and to make sure that it's a spot they know they've had for a long time and that it hasn't changed. I think it's very common that the lay public are aware that moles can change and become melanoma. I think that's good. But the problem is, is that 70% of melanomas arise de novo, meaning that it arises in normal, otherwise uninvolved skin. So I tell my patients... You're allowed to grow new moles until the age of 25 and at every time you are pregnant. Other than that, you should never grow any other new moles. Hmm. So if you have a new spot, it's important to get that checked out because 70% of the time, melanoma comes from previously uninvolved skin. So it's very important to know what moles you've always owned and what spots are new. Hmm. So uh, a new mole when you be uh, past middle age or if you're not pregnant. Is 25 middle age? Because if so, I'm in trouble. Hold on, mister. Did you say 25? 25. Oh, okay. So how often should people people go in to see their dermatologist? Or can they just take care of these body checks 
And until they see something unusual, then they go to a dermatologist. So I think if you have a good relationship with your primary care provider and you don't have very many moles and they tend to look very um, manageable, they all look alike and they're all small and easy for you to monitor also, I think a primary care provider can help you. If you have a family history of skin cancer, if you yourself make funny-looking moles or lots of moles, um, then it would be helpful for you to be followed by a dermatologist. The current recommendations from the Derm Academy are that patients under the age of 40 receive a skin exam every two to three years unless they have a personal history or strong family history of melanoma or dysplastic nevi, meaning funny-looking precancerous moles. After the age of 40, the risk of skin cancer goes up so much for all types that it's recommended that you get an annual skin exam from head to toe. But I'm one of those women who are in my mid-40s who used the tanning booth a lot when I was a teenager. And there should be an express lane for people like me, right? That can there get should checked be. All the time. When I'm doing all of that lotion application to keep my skin <laughs> from being so itchy dry, um, I need to really be te- checking moles and seeing that they're all okay. Yes, and a lot of people will detect their changing moles or their melanomas that arise in otherwise normal skin earlier on places they pay attention to, like their face, their neck, their upper chest, mm-hmm. the backs of their hands. But people can't necessarily see the back of their neck, Absolutely. their back, their buttocks, in mm-hmm. between their gen- in between their legs near their genitals. And we also don't pay attention very much to our palms and especially our soles. Hmm. And sometimes the worst prognosis for melanoma is when it occurs on the palms and soles. One, that's the thickest skin we own. So if something changes, it takes us a lot longer to see it. So that way it's worse when we get to it. And two, we don't look at the bottoms of our feet and not necessarily our palms all the time, or we think it's a piece of lint or something and we go about our business. So it's really important to have a partner in crime help you with the places you can't see. And then it's important to look at the places that you still can, especially hands and feet. All right. We're almost out of time. We have to talk about, uh, circle back to the winter skincare and the, and the cracking because the cracking on the fingers or the hand, you know, are, are just the worst. It is the worst, and it drives people crazy, and it also happens in the feet on the winter, um, although the fingers are usually worse. <laughs> um, and so those fissures and cracks are very painful. Um, they snag on a lot of things, so it makes mm-hmm. it impractical to, like, do some activities of daily living or hobbies that people like to do. The more you use your hands or feet, which is all the time, the cracking simply just progresses and gets worse, so the symptoms are only getting worse and not better. And lastly, you can get really bad infections from fissures on your fingers and toes, especially if you're diabetic or you're immune compromised or you're a cancer patient or transplant patient. So it's very important that we try to keep your skin sealed shut. One, so that you can do what you want to do. Two, so that you stay healthy and it feels good. But three, to keep from getting infected. And there's something over the counter which used to be available by prescription called Castellani's Paint. And Castellani's paint is like a glue for the skin. Now, it's not super glue, so Get don't that worry. that at the hardware store? It Exa- sounds like <laughs> You can pick it up at the pharmacy window or in pharmacy areas of common pharmacies. It is There's a tinted form and an untinted form. I always recommend the untinted form. Otherwise, you'll stain yourself and all your clothes purple. Hmm. <laughs> but untinted Castellani's paint can be placed in your fissures twice a day after you've washed your hands or feet. You wash, pat dry, so that way the area is clean because you don't want to seal in some germs. And then you paint the paint onto the fissured areas. That helps give it support. So it's like a glue, but it's not super tight like super glue where you'll be stuck to something if you accidentally put it in the wrong place. And then it gives support and seals it from infection. So you feel better. You can do your activities of daily living, and it keeps it from getting infection or getting deeper. 
Thanks very much, Dr. Davis, for bringing us up to date on dry skin, wintertime dry skin, and certainly where we live, wintertime lasts a long time. <laughs> Thanks, My Dr. Pleasure. Davis. Yep, Dr. Don Davis, dermatologist at the Mayo Clinic. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Do you have a question about health and medicine from one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Deepman, our social media editor, Audrey Castletime. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know. 